0: All right, I want to invite you to turn to, um, <clears throat> to Luke chapter 14, 25 to 35. This is our, th- our third week in our series called Money Matters. Uh, week one, I talked about having. Week two, I talked about giving. And this week, I want to talk about putting God first and the courage to put him first. I want you to imagine for a second that we're all going down to climb Tulsa down in Tulsa, and uh, you are going to have a coach who's going to teach you how to do some climbing. You may never have done climbing before, but that's okay. The coach is going to help you do this. Some of you would be all about it, really excited about it. Others of you might say, okay, that might require a little bit of courage. So m- then maybe the coach says to you, okay, you're doing pretty good. Now we're, we're going to do this without ropes. We're going to free climb That wall, think, some of you say, no, I'm out. Others of you might say, okay, it requires a little bit more courage, but I'll I'll make that happen. So let's say we go from climb Tulsa to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And you're gonna have another coach and he's gonna train you how to do rock climbing on a little bit more of a serious outdoor rock climb. How many of you would say, Man, I am totally in on that. I want to do it. How many of you would say, "Uh-uh. No way. That is, that is not for me. Some of you are raising your hands. No way that's not for me. So Cindy and I, uh, many years ago, we were challenged to climb Mount Fraser in New Mexico, and I give you an arrow to where that is. Well, we climb the backside of Mount Fraser, the one you're not supposed to climb because we thought that was the right way to go. And we're climbing up, pretty soon it's hand over hand, and we're free climbing this thing. We have four young kids, and all of a sudden my protective husband mode kicks in, and I start to say to Cindy, okay, sweetheart, this is what we gotta do. (laughs) It It was really very challenging. It required us, me, to ramp up some courage, To be able to lead myself well and lead Cindy well without controlling her, which I sometimes would do, required courage. So let's up the ante a little bit more. How many of you know what this is? El Capitan. This is the big one. Everybody wants to climb El Capitan. And nobody would ever think about doing this without ropes, except for Alex Honnold, who recently free-climbed El Capitan like, like no ropes at all. So here's, here's a picture of him free-climbing. There's, there's no place to really put your, your foot except like a little maybe half-inch little undulation in the rock. And he's, fl- he's free-climbing this thing. And people who saw this on IMAX said that they would get physically as they were thinking about how high this was and how easy this would be to fall. Requires, Requires courage. Now, anything that you do in life that is significant is going to require courage. And yet, I would argue that courage in our culture is in very short supply these days. We like things to be very safe, we like layers of protection. We have expectations that we will never encounter danger or problems or difficulties and we, we layer ourselves around with all sorts of protection. And therefore, many times we are not required as people living in 2019 to ramp up serious courage. And yet Jesus asks us to do that. He asks us to ramp up serious courage in following him. Case in point is the end of the passage we're going to look at today. Jesus says in Luke 14, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up some of his own possessions. Oh, wait a second. It says all. All his own possessions. That is the tip of the iceberg in this passage. What he is calling us to is a life of courage. And what I want to do this morning is, is show you how important courage is in your relationship with, 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 with God, and especially the, the courage to put, to put Jesus first. So let's, let's begin with Luke, um, <clears throat> Luke 14, 25-35 with the context, and I would, want to tell you this story. Because right in the middle of Luke's gospel, Jesus leads his disciples on a long journey. This journey lasts for 10 chapters. It begins in Luke 9:51, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This idea of setting your face means to do something with courage, grit, and determination. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in 10 chapters, uh, we see him going all over the place. And it ends this journey in 1928. uh, When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And then when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And we drew near the city, he wept over it. So this is an entire 10-chapter journey right in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. And it is a zigzag journey. He's going back and forth where God the Father is leading him. He's teaching, he's doing miracles, he is telling parables. It's, it's a pretty amazing journey. And the thing that permeates this is courage. We know it's courage because what we, what we see in, in, at the end is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he prayed? He said, God... Uh, if it's possible, please let this cup be taken from me. The cup of the cross, the cup of suffering, the cup of separation from the Father, the Lord. Could, if, it's, if it's your will, could it be taken from me? You read that now and you think, wow. He's wrestling in prayer over going to the cross. Now, if Jesus did not have the courage, let me tell you what he could have done. He could have marched over the Mount of Olives, into the Judean wilderness. And there's the Judean wilderness. I mean, I mean, Garden of Gethsemane is beautiful. It's over the Mount of Olives, it's desert. And he could have gone off into the Judean wilderness, and nobody would ever have seen him again. He could have escaped the cross. He had courage. Courage to do what the Father told him to do. And this courage, I, I think, is is a great perspective because, you know, he's not thinking about the cross as he's going to Jerusalem. He's not thinking about the resurrection when he goes to Jerusalem. He's thinking about the ultimate outcome, which was his ascension and return back to the Father. So he's going to Jerusalem with courage. Yes, he knows the the crucifixion is going to take place, the resurrection is going to take place, but he's looking at the ultimate culmination which is going back to the Father, ultimate total victory. So Jesus' journey in Luke 9 51 through 1928 is a journey of courage in spite of the upcoming pain and spiritual separation. So what Jesus does is now he inspires his disciples to a lifestyle of courage as well. I'm going to show you some snapshots of that courage. Luke 9 52. They're about ready to go on the journey. When he, and he sent messengers ahead of them who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus is doing this precisely to teach them courage. He has them go into a cross-cultural situation where there was racial animosity. And when they go to the village of the Samaritans, they say to the disciples, the Samaritan say to the disciples, uh, so where are you guys headed? Where are you going? We're going to Jerusalem. Really? Yeah, we're going to Jerusalem. Get out of our village. We don't want you here. We don't want your kind here. If you're, if you're going to Jerusalem, we do not want you here. So he's teaching them courage by allowing them to be in a place where they would, they would encounter rejection. Now, he's asking them to have the right kind of courage, because what we notice is that, uh, is that <clears throat> well, James and John, James and John, uh, you know, the Zebedee brothers, the guys who had an anger problem, James and John hear this rejection, and they say, hey, Jesus, do you, do you want us to, like, call fire down from heaven and destroy these people? wrong kind of courage, wrong kind of courage. What he wants is the right kind of courage, the courage to be gritty and perseverant in the place of, of fear. So as you look at, at these other examples in this on this journey, what you find is that he is going to train them on how to do supernatural ministry. Luke 10 verse 9, heal the sick. Now he's giving them a command. These guys hadn't done this before. He said, I want you to go into these villages. I want you to Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The presence of Jesus has come near to you. They had no training in supernatural ministry. They had no training in that kind of prayer. So they're going into villages and they're going, okay, okay, so we're supposed to heal the sick. Okay, let's let's start praying for people. That required courage. Courage. Because they could have easily come up to somebody and said, I, I don't want you to pray for me. There were people in the ancient world who were sick who did not want prayer from Jesus or the disciples. These, it re- that required courage. So when the 72 come back after doing this, they were fired up. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's good. Okay, so they learned how to do supernatural ministry. Jesus knew that they had scored a victory in the supernatural realm. All that's good. But now look what he says. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Okay, what he just said there is, great, you've got the power, but look, this is a spiritual battle that we're at here. And this spiritual battle is going to be a challenge. You've got the power to handle it. It's going to be a challenge. So he's calling them to the right kind of courage, the courage to take risks in their faith, the courage to do spiritual battle in their faith. Let me give you another example of courage on the journey. This is a really funny verse. Luke 13, 32. They're still on the journey. And Jesus is being confronted by some people who want to scare him. And some of the political powers that be essentially said, Jesus, you know, get away from here. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Get out of here. Remember what happened when Jezebel, the Queen Jezebel, back in Elijah's day, says, Elijah, I'm coming after you. Elijah was seized with anxiety. He bolted and he fled. It would have been theoretically possible to hear something like this and to go, oh my gosh, the ruler over the land wants to kill me. I'm going to bolt and flee. Jesus now models to them how to ramp up courage. Jesus says, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I reach my goal. Now, let me tell you something. You don't tell the leader, whose name is Herod, that he's a fox. Now, you know, we, we, we sort of think of foxes, cute, furry little things, you know, and we think, gosh, could, that, could, could that, that could almost be a pet in my house. In the ancient world, to call somebody a fox meant two things it meant you are a vulture, a snake, and a rat, it was very derogatory. Not that you're a cute, furry thing that I think might want to be my friend. You're a, you're a snake, a vulture, and a rat. It was something bad. Additionally, fox meant you were insignificant. And so Jesus is, is basically saying, Herod, you old fox, I'm doing my supernatural work. I'm healing the sick. I'm casting out demons. I'm freeing people from pain. In a few days, my work will be complete. But Herod, I am not going to alter my course. You are not in control over me. I'm telling you, he is modeling courage to his disciples along the journey. So let's, let's briefly apply this journey. What, what, is this, what does this mean for us? Well, look, Luke is an historian. So the journey in Luke 9 through 19 really and truly happened. But Luke is also writing for us in the year 2019. And Luke is using this journey as an emblem for what we will all face. And here's how, it, here's how it works. Back then, Jesus was on the move, and Jesus was changing lives. Back then. Right now, Jesus is still on the move, and he is still changing lives. And we're called into the same journey. The journey that Luke was on, uh, that Jesus was on in Luke 9 through 19 is like the journey that we are on right now today. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So we're on a journey. And in that journey, it's, it's a journey where he is already on the move, he's already changing lives, and he's calling us into that journey to have influence in his name to change lives. And I'm telling you, to, to do this effectively as a follower of Christ, it requires courage. Maybe courage that we don't, we don't currently have. Maybe courage that we, that we need. It's amazing to me to hear stories about courage. Stories from people who live in Africa, India, China, and Asia. But it's equally encouraging for me to hear stories of people who are right here in Bartlesville. Whose names are not, you know on the magazines that you read or the newspapers you read, but people who are doing incredible things to advance the cause of Christ within our city. They're on the journey, and they're ramping up courage in order to do this. Now I think people who are listening to Jesus were pretty fired up about this, because you know, we, we like being called to courage. We might not like it when the going gets hard, but we like the call to courage and indeed they were Luke 14:25 now great crowds accompanied him so he's calling people to courageous influence the crowds are yes that's what we want you know you you and i know what big crowds look like don't we because we can we can read the news we can see it on tv what it's like when say a caravan of people forms in central america we we know it 3000 people look like on a road. He had, he had thousands of people following him, wanting to be part of this journey. And now, now he has to say, wait a second. Wait a second. The journey's great. I want you to be in the journey, but you, you really have to count the cost. And so now, now he's going to train them on how to count the cost. What does it mean to have courage on the journey to follow Jesus? What, what does that mean specifically? So we go from the journey now to his challenge to count, to count the cost. So there's going to be four, three attitudes we're going to look at. And if you're going to be on this journey of courage to have influence, there's going to be three attitudes. The first attitude is that Jesus must come before every human relationship. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Here's a a brief, quick observation. He's going to repeat those five words, he cannot be my disciple, three times in Luke 14, 25 to 35. He's going to repeat that three times. Five words, three times. You wonder, you know, Jesus, did you not take marketing 101 when you were in college? I mean, you know, if if you're taking marketing 101, you would would say, you can be my disciple. Uh, And uh, people are seeking purpose in life. I got a purpose for you. You can be my disciple. Come on, be my disciple. Jesus isn't doing that. He's casting it in the negative because he wants the people who are following him to confront themselves about their decision. And we need to confront ourselves about the decision as well. Going, going, back, going back to the verse, he's got to come before every human relationship. If anyone comes to me, he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. What is he he saying? Hate is a very uh, strong figure of speech because we think about hate, we think about revulsion, disgust, animosity, contempt, anger, all that stuff. That's not how the word is used here. The word hate in this context is a choosing word. It's a choosing word. It means we choose for one thing to be radically first and another thing to be radically second. So in Malachi chapter 1, the prophet says, God says to the prophet, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I will tell you, Jacob and Esau were the fraternal twin sons of of Isaac and Rebekah. Fraternal twin sons. And God chose Jacob to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Esau, he did not choose. God blessed both men. Both men became great nations. But one was chosen to be the ancestor of the Messiah. The other was not chosen. Jacob was radically first. He's in the line. Esau is radically second. So this verse suggests that we make a strong decision Did Jesus come before every other human relationship, even the ones that are closest to us? This is a very hard decision to make because it's easy to love your spouse more than Jesus, isn't it? Thank you for answering that question. (laughs) It is easy to love your spouse more than Jesus. Thank you so much for being here and answering that. That that was great. We needed that. We needed that. Um, My wife is just up on the screen, and I'm seeing her give the announcement. And the whole time I'm seeing her do the announcement, I'm thinking, I love her. I love her. It is easy. It is easy to love another human being more than you love Jesus. It's easy to love our children more than we love Jesus. It's possible to love our parents more than we love Jesus. It's possible to love ourselves and our agendas more than Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Loving family is a really noble thing. It's a really important thing. It's a matter of your character. But Jesus said, look, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's calling disciples to make a radical choice. Jesus is radically first. Everybody else, including the most important people, are radically second. The word hate means something else as well. Jesus used the word to convey a potential worst case scenario. When you put Jesus first, sometimes the people in your life assume that you must hate them if you're putting Jesus first. So imagine what happens in a Jewish home when a person comes to Christ. The family says, you've destroyed our family. You must hate us to have made this decision. This decision brings shame on our family. How could you possibly have done this? And some Jewish families will sometimes hold a funeral for this person who has come to know Christ. They assume that choosing Jesus means hating the other person. It's worse in Muslim families. Well, I've heard stories where people have come to Christ and their, the male members of the family came after them to kill them, because it brought so much shame on the family. Sometimes placing Christ first makes it seem to family and friends like you hate them." So Jesus is saying this, "Look look, don't follow me too quickly without counting the cost. You can't be my disciple unless you're willing to love me more than even the most important relationships that you have in your life. Is that sobering? I hope it's sobering. Now he gives the second attitude. Jesus has got to come before our most passionately held agendas and goals. How many of you have passionately held convictions and beliefs, and agendas, and goals. All of us do. I know that if I sat down with you, within five to ten minutes, I could identify your hot button issue, and I could get you to talk a lot about the thing you're so passionate about. Jesus has to come before that. So Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my Disciple. Jesus is, is saying that, that following him is going to mean that uh, our agendas and, and passionately held positions are going to have to be sometimes put on the back burner because we're going to have to follow him above all else. And he gives the picture of carrying the cross. I'm going to say more about this on Palm Sunday, but everybody knew what this was like. See, when you were crucified, You were taken into a courtyard. Your hands were affixed to a pole. And two uh, Roman soldiers called lictors would trade hits, bringing a a leather strap down on your back 40 times. The guy on your left did it 20 times. The guy on your right did it 20 times, 40 times. It would affect your head, your back, your calves, And then they would put the crossbar of the cross on the bruised and broken skin, and they would make you carry that crossbar to the place of the crucifixion. And while you were carrying the crossbar, people were yelling at you and contemptuously jeering and mocking you. It was a shameful experience. You carried the crossbar for about a mile, and only then did they body slam you down to the ground on your back and then pin you to the cross with nine-inch nails. Everybody who heard Jesus say, carry your cross, had this gruesome, grotesque picture in their mind. And what's the picture? It's a picture of the idea that my rights are none. I have no rights now. Like I'm carrying this cross. I have no rights. I have no Freedom, I have no power, I have no choice, I have to do this. This is this is where I'm headed. And so for Jesus to say, carry your cross means y- you have to submit yourself to me. So how how were the disciples supposed to apply this? Literally or figuratively? Figuratively. Figuratively, because there were not dozens of crossbars lying on the ground. They, they couldn't say, Jesus, hang on, let me get a crossbar, and let me, let me pick up the crossbar, and we'll follow you to Jerusalem. They, they, weren't, they weren't there. He's meaning for them to apply this figuratively, meaning, meaning that they give up their own independent right to their life and follow him no matter where that would go. You remember, the disciples didn't do this on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Remember, Jesus is arrested And the disciples did not follow Jesus to the cross. They bolted and they fled. He means for us to apply this, for for them to apply this figuratively. And so he gives us some illustrations so that we know how how to apply this. Illustration number one is the tower. Which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all will observe it and begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build, but he was not able to finish the project. Jesus is referring to a common watchtower and a big one, because this one has a foundation. And here's what it looked like. These were the watchtowers that were in Israel. You would, you would plant a vineyard. You would build a wall around the vineyard. Then you'd build a watchtower, and you knew if anybody was going to come and steal your stuff. If you saw somebody with a watchtower that was halfway built, you'd go, ha, that guy had plans, but he didn't finish the deal. And Jesus is saying, I, I want you to count the cost. Are you willing to pick up your cross, metaphorically speaking, and follow me, even though you don't know where it's gonna to lead to. Could be persecution, could be blessing, could be hardship, could be affluence. Are you willing to pick up your cross and go to the place where I lead you? Well, he ups the ante. He, first he goes illustration of, a personal illustration of a tower, now he goes to a national illustration to a kingdom. What king, when he sits down to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Well, you know, in the ancient world, um, we, we have all these terrible battles. We can't even conceive how bad these are. These terrible battles where if you were the loser, you weren't Immediately killed, you were tortured before you were killed. And everybody hearing Jesus would have known this. So you're thinking, okay, do, do I really want to go up against that that stronger enemy? Do I really want to do that? What Jesus is saying is, look, the Christian life is going to include some hardship. It's going to include some spiritual warfare. It's gonna it's gonna include some difficulty. Are you are you willing to pick up your cross and follow me? even if it leads into paths that are very painful? Are you willing to do that? It's a hard question. It's a hard question. Paul said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Look, you, be, you become a Christian, and uh, there are going to be some spiritual battles that you face in your life. Now he gives us the third reason why following him requires courage. Third attitude is this. Jesus must come before our money and our possessions. Our money and our possessions. Just think about this verse for a second. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up. Some or all. All. You look at that and you think, what in the world? <laughs> like like how, how do I even begin to do something like what he's like what he's talking about? Let me tell you what Jesus means. He is saying, as a disciple, I yield the independent right to use possessions and money any way I want. Let me tell you what this meant back in eighty thirty-three some of the people following Jesus were going to head to Jerusalem and they were going to die and so um, some could go to jail some might lose everything through death or injury and Jesus says look if you're going to follow me um, you need to recognize that you got to give up your possessions now because you you could follow me right up to a cross and you're going to hang on a cross for us living 2,000 years later We have to take this and contextualize it to our time frame. And in our time frame, what this means is that Jesus is calling us to yield to Him the independent right to manage money any way that I want. Let me be really clear about this. The disciples continued to own private property after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. They contended to to have possessions, Jesus is using an intentional figure of speech to remind us of the importance of giving up the independent right of our possessions. Look, let's say you apply this absolutely literally. I give all my possessions. I give the clothes on my back. Well, what do I wear on Monday? I've given everything. I, can't, I, I don't have anything to wear on Monday. I can't give anything else the next day, or the day after that, or the day after that. He's not meaning for us to apply this literally, which some people over the years have done. And I would argue it's way too easy to get to, to use it literally. It's much harder to apply it in the way that he intends, which is I give up the independent right of my possessions, and I use my money and I use my material possessions As Jesus would have me use them, I use them under his guidelines. I use them according to what he would like for me to do, which is set down in the word and which is applied through prayer. You know, we we love to, to derive our identity through our material possessions, you know, our cars, our clothing, and so on. And that's not all bad. But what Jesus is saying is, I I want you to remove your identity, your core identity from those things. You You know, disciples are working really hard to disconnect personal identity from possessions. Okay, we naturally do this. Is that hard to do? It is really hard to do. It's really hard to do. Just talk to somebody who went from having a lot to encountering a crushing financial blow and now they have very little and now it's like their identity has been shifted and it's it's very hard. He's asking us to do this as a spiritual discipline month in month out, year in year out, decade in and decade decade out. So, here's the main idea of this journey and his application. Jesus is on the move. He's all around us. He's doing things to advance his kingdom, and he calls us into a journey of power and service, but he has got to come first on that journey. And first means this. He comes before our closest relationships, he comes before our most deeply held personal agendas, and he comes before our money and our possessions. We place him first, radically first, before each one of those, of those things. Now, as we close, I want to ask you to do one thing. I want you to think about a different way of counting the cost. I want you to calculate the cost of non-discipleship. He's asking us to count the cost, but let's let's reverse it, and let's count the cost of non-discipleship. What is it that you're giving up if you say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to do this. I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't want to have him be, be before my Plans and my people in my life and my possession. I don't. I don't want that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be a disciple like that. What are you. What are you forfeiting? Well, you're forfeiting the power of the Spirit. You're forfeiting the unconditional love of God the Father. You're forfeiting the freedom of forgiveness of sins. You're losing out on the joy of genuine Christian fellowship. You're forfeiting the joy of seeing others being delivered from the domain of darkness. You're forfeiting the joy of seeing God supernaturally provide for your needs. You're forfeiting the transcendent purpose that you have of helping others find joy in Christ. You're opening yourself up to a place where life can feel meaningless and frustrating. Like I've talked to friends of mine who are following Jesus for a long time, and they said, you know what, I'm I'm out. I'm out. I'm going to kind of slack off. I'm going to do my own thing. Don't know how long this season is going to be, but I'm going to do my own thing. And then they come back, and I I would ask them, why did you come back? And the kind of thing that I would hear is this. I thought I could control my life, and for a while I did. But it was an illusion, because I realized there were things I did not have control over. But I I couldn't go to God because I had said, I'm out for a while. Couldn't go to Him. So I bore down and tried to do it myself and I couldn't do it myself. And I I cried out to God, you're the Lord. I'm not. You're in control. I'm not. And that's why they came back. They encountered non-discipleship and it wasn't working for them. If you... If you count the cost of non-discipleship, discipleship is a great deal. Because what I do is I, is I say, Jesus, you're radically first. You're before, you're before the most important people in my life. You're before the most important possessions in my life. You're before my most important plans in my life. I give it up to you now, Lord Jesus. You lead me, as I follow you on this journey, and and I'm going to rejoice in the things that you give to me to do that you got to ramp up courage you got to ramp up courage so here's the key takeaway the key takeaway is ramp up the courage i love this picture because you know here's the cat eh, but you got a lion with a shadow you may feel like the cat today with just a little bit of courage and i'm just I'm, i'm encouraging you to ramp it up take some steps of faith take some steps of courageous faith ramp up the courage and put them first and one of the areas where you put them first is in your finances, where you say, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm going to have the ownership talk with you now. Here's the ownership talk, Lord. Lord, I have, I have my portfolio of assets. I have my net worth. I have my income. I've got my material possessions. And Jesus, what I'm saying to you is, they're yours. Now show me how to manage these in such a way that you're radically first in my life. I'm telling you, that requires courage. But the joyful outcome is that you get to be with Jesus on the journey and you see his supernatural influence in your life. Let's stand for a closing prayer.